Hi, you're listening to the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Vicky Marinka. And today I'm joined by a certain Steve Marinka. And for full disclosure, he is indeed my husband. We met while working in public relations. And I thought, who better to start this podcast but with someone who I know is excellent at his job and who I know very well. Hello, Steve. <laughs> Hello, Vicky. So the purpose of this podcast is to find out a little bit more about people who work in communications. I've been interviewing people in communications for a, mm, about 20 years, so I reckon I've interviewed about 10,000 candidates over those years. And I've heard some fantastic stories and learned a lot about communications. I think it would be interesting for people to, at home to hear your story about how you got into PR, what that journey has been like, a little bit about where you work now and how your career's evolved. So over to you. I think if you ask a lot of people my age, and I'm cracking off my mid-50s now, how they got into PR, a lot of them will say, I just kind of fell into it. And that's certainly my experience. I left university, I came to London without a job, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was very fortunate that uh, through nepotism, I got a, a research job. But I was even more, more fortunate that someone who had graduated the year before me had got a job at BP, um, and he gave me a freelance writing job. So I would go to Britannic House, as it was then, BP's headquarters, usually very early in the morning. I would interview some luminary from that particular part of the organisation. Then I'd go to work and do my dead-end research job. And then in the evening, I would write up the interview from that morning and deposit it the following day. Uh, and over the course of several months, A, I was earning more money doing my freelance work than I was my full-time job. But B, I was building up a portfolio of articles for internal communications. I took that portfolio to a friend of a friend in search of some more freelance work. And an hour later, I walked out with a job offer. That was an agency called Jude Rogerson, which no longer exists in its current form. But at that point was the kind of doyen of city PR. They did all the big privatisations. You know. So I started working there doing a, a pretty low level role in a very low level part of that organisation. But it gave me a taste for what communications was all about. And I decided that what I really wanted to do was PR. And PR and communications are often conflated. PR is, it tends to be associated with media relations, representing organisations and brands to the media. So it's quite narrowly focused. But that's what I wanted to do. This is 1346 or something. It was a very, very long time ago. It was, I mean, what, 1990 or 1991, I guess. And so I applied for media relations type jobs and I got one and, and that was a, really the beginning of my career in communications. Do you think that definition of PR still stands or do you think that it's broader now with other stakeholders and influencers? I think the term public relations is still a little bit toxic and still very associated with media relations. Most people I think would prefer to think of themselves as communications professionals rather than PR professionals. But so much, so much of what I do now has got absolutely nothing to do with the media whatsoever. It's to do with how an organisation or a leader or an idea presents itself to all of its audiences through all of its channels. And the media, often I think in, in, in many instances, has very little role to play in shaping those outcomes is much more about what's said internally, what's said to investors, 
what's said through social and digital channels. So I think you know, more and more the work that people like me do is not connected to or not concerned with how a business or an organisation is presented in the media. And, and often I hear clients say that, that they don't really care. They don't really care what business commentators say about them. They don't really care about their the way that they're reported in the media. They're far more concerned with their direct communications with the people that really matter to them. How do you think that change has happened? Is that a change in PR or is that because your career and the careers of your clients have evolved and grown? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it has to, I hate it when people say it's a bit of both, but I'm going to say it's a bit of both. Certainly I have evolved as a as a professional. I spent most of my early years and a good part of my middle years focused on consumer PR. To the extent that I'm known in the industry for anything is actually for consumer communication. And it's really quite recently that I made the shift to predominantly corporate comms. I really only started that journey in earnest about five or six years ago. So certainly, you know, my personal perspective has changed. And, and as you make the transition from consumer communication to corporate communication, I think your horizons broaden. It's, certainly, it's true to say, by the way, I think that consumer PR, uh, people who work in consumer PR are far more switched on in terms of digital and social communication. But in corporate communication, I think you do have this much broader conception of why it is you get up in the morning and what your, what your purpose in life is. Fundamentally, what we try to do is to help organisations, individuals, ideas, causes to be properly understood. That's our purpose as communications professionals. That's why God put us on earth, is to help people be better understood. Because there's nothing more frustrating than feeling that you're not properly understood. And what we can do is help you find the words, the images, the constructions, the ways of thinking, the ways of presenting ideas, the ways of dressing, the ways of modulating your voice to help you be understood in the way that you would like to be understood. My personal journey is from selling baked beans and doing silly stunts for tomato ketchup, which, by the way, I think when I, you know, I'm on my deathbed, I'll look back on that as being when I was you know, happiest in my career. But it's not the most important thing that I will have done. The most important thing that I will have done is help people feel that they have got their ideas and their vision across to the audiences that matter most to them. You've spent your whole career in agencies. Have you ever been tempted in-house? And what is it about agencies that you thrive in? Um, I've never really had the opportunity to work in-house. I've certainly applied for in-house roles but not got them over the years. The closest I came to working in-house is when I went on a pretty short secondment to Blackberry. They were short-staffed and so I spent probably about two months schlepping out to Slough and that was the closest I came to any kind of in-house experience and really I think all I did was all of the work that I would have done in my agency role but just based in Slough. I've never really been massively attracted to the in-house life because I've become habituated to the plurality of agency life. I love the fact you know if I take a typical day where I am now at Powers Court it can involve in just one, you know, I was going to say eight-hour day, but it's more like a 10 or 12-hour day. It can involve fusion energy, deep-sea mining, electric vehicles, 
e-bikes and e-scooters for Halfords. It can involve banking, betting, e-commerce, luxury fashion, all in one day, because I'm working across you know, quite a diverse portfolio of clients in radically different sectors. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning, that variety. And was your move from consumer PR into corporate communications an intentional one? No. I think it's probably worth saying that corporate PR has always been part of my career from from day one. But certainly for the first 20 or so years, maybe even the first 25 years, the focus was on consumer communication. And then I started to get older. Obviously, I've been getting older since uh, the very beginning. But you know what I mean? I I I was in my 40s, I guess, mid-40s and maybe even late 40s, and I thought, it's not very seemly for someone of my age. That the, the last thing I did in the name of consumer PR was I took a, a retro Citroen van to Primrose Hill to sell smoothies made out of pepperami. Mmm, that sounds lovely. <laughs> yeah, which obviously was a stunt, and I think we had a kind of wasn't a page three model exactly, but someone like that, probably someone from TOWIE or something like that, as a celebrity, and we had the media there. And it was actually incredibly successful, but I just looked at this tableau of this silly consumer PR stunt and then kind of metaphorically looked at myself in the mirror, this 40-something-year-old man who masterminded this nonsense. And I thought, what are you doing with your life? This is something that would be great fun if you were 29, but not when you're 49. But by that point, I was already making the move. I think I'd already resigned from where I was at that point. And I was about to take up a role in a grown-up corporate city agency. I think it was a lot easier for me to make that transition than the other transition you see a lot in our industry, which is journalists leaving journalism and coming to work for PR, which is a real culture shock for most of them. Whereas the basic principles of client service and diligence and timekeeping and keeping your promises and all of that apply just as much in corporate as they do in consumer. Can you give me a few choice examples of some of the consumer work that you look back on with pride? Yeah, I absolutely love and cherish the work that I did for Lloyd's Pharmacy um, back in the in the noughties. And the, the particular brief we had was to promote the online pharmacy, Lloyd's Pharmacy's online pharmacy, which at that time, and I think it's still true today, was primarily focused on sexual health. You get contraception, including the morning after pill, obviously Viagra and other ED drugs, condoms, basically anything that you might not want to go and see your doctor about because you're embarrassed or you're worried you might be seen by a neighbour or whatever it happens to be, you can get a prescription from an online doctor and then you know, whatever it is you want is sent to you in a brown paper envelope. So that was the, that was the client. The task was to publicise this service. And the idea that we came up with is an online calculator based on an algorithm that unbelievably, and you know, my talent for maths, I wrote, which we called Sex Degrees of Separation. Nice. And the calculator asks you a number of questions about your sexual history. And then it tells you the number of people that you have indirectly slept with. In other words, your partners, 
your partner's partners, your partner's partner's partners, and so on through six degrees of separation, hence six degrees of separation. So you fill in the questionnaire and it tells you, you have indirectly slept with 2,940,000, blah, <laughs> whatever, whatever the figure is. Uh, and this was, you know, we got double page spreads, we got endless amounts of broadcast and digital uh, exposure. And it was, you know, with a purpose, uh, because every, certainly every online piece had a link to the calculator. You link to the calculator and guess what? You're in the Lloyd's Pharmacy online pharmacy domain. And so we've got potential customer. So it was incredibly successful, multi-award winning. And I'm, I'm very proud of that campaign. And could you see a business benefit to that as well? Did that translate into... Yes, customers. It did. It did. Yes. I, I, I don't have I don't haven't got the case study in front of me, but I remember writing one for various award submissions and I think we were able to very convincingly show that there was a tangible business benefit. So that's something I look back with you know, incredibly tactical. You know, super, super tactical, very focused on the consumer, silly and smutty and kind of carry on PR. But really successful, tremendous fun. And, and for Lloyd's Pharmacy, it was a gift that kept on giving. I mean, they just rolled it out every year. Let's talk about your current career and your corporate communications experience. So uh, can you give us a, a few highlights? Well, my life's very different. I don't do those kinds of stunts anymore. So I, I mentioned um, deep sea mining a moment ago. We work with the company that is probably most advanced in developing the technology for deep sea mining that there's no such the industry doesn't exist at the moment probably realistically it's not going to exist for another eight or so years uh, we're in exploration mode but as you can imagine the idea of sending autonomous vehicles to the bottom of the sea to extract the rocks or the nodules on the bottom of the ocean bring them back up to the surface and extract the metals therein is incredibly controversial and pretty much every environmental NGO um, NGO that's concerned with you know, ocean health and marine life is dead set against this industry from being established. So the work that I do in that space has got nothing to do with sort of moments in time. You know, we don't do stunts or individual tactics. It's about framing a debate. It's about how do you construct an argument and a narrative about, first of all, the demand? It's opening up people's eyes to the fact that demand for metal is going to grow exponentially over the next 80 or so years, that we face choices about where we get that metal from, that we can get it from the land, but that comes at a cost, that there are alternatives, but there are also trade-offs, and people need to understand this and let the research continue so that we get the data that we need to make sensible, informed decisions. So that, that's not a, a task that can be achieved through tactics. It's a task that can be achieved by creating a narrative, by talking to a wide range of stakeholders, whether they be NGOs or academics, journalists certainly, politicians of course, and the industry itself, helping our client construct an argument so that when they have their interactions with their multiple stakeholders, they're able to convey that story in a compelling and interesting way, creating assets that have longevity, websites primarily, video um, and other content. So it's a completely different mindset. It's about, you know, it's very long term and it's multi-stakeholder, multi-channel and obviously a lot more grown up in terms of what we're trying to achieve. 
And you work with some clients on controversial campaigns and they create controversial products or services. Uh, For example, I know that you work with clients in the gambling sector. Do you need to ethically agree with those clients' purpose to succeed on an account? It's interesting. I have certainly found myself at various points in my career confronted, if that's the right way of putting it, with the opportunity to work with a client or clients in a controversial industry. And I may have been reluctant initially, but then when I look at it and understand the complexity and the nuance and the granularity of the arguments, I can see that they have a perfectly legitimate point of view and perspective. The best example, I think, is GM food, which is not so controversial these days, but back in 1999, we had the opportunity, the agency that I was working for at the time, to pitch to a consortium of biotechnology businesses, including Monsanto, which many people recall was the the big bad beast of crop biotechnology, or allegedly so. And the purpose of this, the objective of this brief was to try to re-establish or establish some semblance of balance in the debate about GM food, which up until that point had been dominated by the NGOs and was routinely characterised in the media as being Frankenstein food and unleashing untold potential harm to our children and our planet. And so I'd only been, my only encounter with GM food up until that point had been through the lens of the media. So I was kind of wary about this opportunity but also kind of ghoulishly fascinated to look a bit deeper and understand more and so I did and we ended up pitching for this piece of business and winning it and I remember standing up it was a Friday afternoon we have a at that time we had a regular Friday afternoon just before the weekend get together with the whole company and as part of that my job was to tell my colleagues that we'd won this piece of business and also, by the way, who wants to work on it? <laughs> and there were kind of audible gasps when I told them what we'd pitched for and what we'd won and what the brief was. And I remember one colleague was aghast and she took me to one side and said, I, I can't believe that we've pitched for this business, much less that we've won it. It's just mm. abhorrent. It's abominable. She ended up working on it and she ended up being the biggest advocate really? there's ever been for GM food. Yeah, And I was and am an advocate for GM and maybe I drank the Kool-Aid you know I can't deny that for a period of time GM paid the mortgage and so one perhaps has a natural inclination to be very positive about any organization or group of organizations that puts food on the table but I think and I remember Tim Bell his great mantra was everyone has a right to be heard and so long as they're operating within the law they have a right to be heard so are there any issues that you would not work on? Well, you know, on, on many occasions, I said I would never, ever work for the tobacco industry. But in the last five years, I've pitched to two tobacco firms. It so happens unsuccessfully. But yeah, undoubtedly, I did change my moral tune, my ethical tune, when confronted with substantial opportunities. I think unless and until you are confronted with a particular opportunity... You don't really know how you're going to respond. So you can say in very abstract terms, I would never work for X, Y, Z. But then when that opportunity presents itself, I think you owe it to yourself to say, well, hang on a minute. What's 
actually driving that position? Is it valid in this instance? What's the client's perspective? And then if you go through that process diligently, you may come out the other end saying, I can see they have a legitimate point of view or a point of view that at least needs to be heard. And I see no reason why I wouldn't be the one to help them make that case. How did your professional life change in March when we went into lockdown with coronavirus? From a client point of view, how did your client work change? Yeah, dramatically. So yes, there was all that stuff about working from home. And I think, you know, I'm not sure how helpful That's been covered. That's been covered, yeah. I don't think I have ever been as valued by clients as I have been since March, since late March when we went into lockdown. And I hear that time and again from colleagues and from others in the industry. The value of communication at a time like this becomes manifest. So we were very worried. We were worried about two things. We were worried that a lot of our clients would get into financial difficulties and therefore either cut their fees or just stop entirely. Uh, And that hasn't happened for the most part. And we were worried that they'd be so focused on other things that communications just wouldn't be on their radar. Nothing could be further from the truth. Our clients have never wanted to communicate more than they have over the past few months. They've never needed to communicate more than they have over the past few months. It's not just a question of volume. Certainly the volume of communication has gone up substantially. But the profile and importance of that communication, the management time that's devoted to it. Now, we've never been closer to our most senior clients than we have been over the past few months. Uh, relationships have been we had a number of relationships I would say that were perfectly okay but our clients probably wouldn't have necessarily sort of cried into their beer had those relationships come to an end for some for some reason those relationships or many of them at least have become incredibly close very dependent uh, and really rewarding because they're dealing with existentially important stuff in terms of how do you keep your people with you how do you articulate a short-term and a long-term plan to your investors, to your people, to your customers, to government, whoever is important. We have been closer to our clients than I think we've probably ever been in our history as a consultancy. And I feel closer to you know, a number of my clients because of, of what has happened. You know, There are some clients where, you know, as I say, we, know we, have a, we have a perfectly good relationship, we add some value, we're in reasonably regular contact. And then suddenly, COVID happens. The nature, the velocity and the importance of the conversations that we're having just goes through the stratosphere. We, um, we won Halfords, I think about seven days before lockdown. Had we won that business under normal circumstances, I'm sure we'd be doing a really good job for them. I'm sure they'd be very happy with us. But because seven days after we won that business, the world changed. The way in which we started to interact with this new client just took on a completely different dimension. First of all, there was a question of whether they would be an essential retailer or not, and, and they were. Secondly, what does that mean? What does that mean for their people? What does that mean for investors? What does that mean for customers? What does that mean for their suppliers? How do you communicate that? How can you communicate it really quickly? How do you communicate it when every five minutes you're getting a completely different message from government? And then we have the cycling boom. And what does that mean for Halfords? And on the one hand, it's brilliant because they're selling a lot more bicycles. But on the other hand, what they really want to talk about is motoring. So how do we get the right balance between the thing that everybody else wants to talk about and the thing that they really want to talk about? And you had a really good win during that period, didn't you, when Boris was doing his daily briefings? we, We set ourselves a very simple challenge, 
which is to get cycling added to the daily coronavirus press briefing. So you may recall that every day transport data was being presented. So we saw whether car journeys were going up or down and train journeys and tube journeys and bus journeys. And we said, well, why, why isn't cycling on there? Because the government wants people to cycle more. So surely cycling should be added to this data set. So we lobbied for it and we had a successful outcome. Amazing. And how do you think COVID is going to impact on the shape of PR in the future? Well, the optimist in me says consumers of PR services, that they've seen the incredible value of comms, of comms advice, of professional comms advice. They've seen the value of that through COVID. They may well have seen it from time to time prior to COVID, but boy, have they seen it over the past few months. And that as we return to whatever it's going to be, normal, new normal, whatever, the legacy of that experience will stand the industry in good stead. So that's my hope. And I think it's my expectation as well. Apart from anything else, you know, I think the COVID story is going to be, there's going to be a long, a long comet's tale. You know, it's not, we're not going to wake up on a particular date and say, phew, that's all over then, isn't it? You know, let's not get into a conversation about vaccines and all the rest of it. But it's going to be some years before whatever the, whatever the future normal looks like has established itself. So I think for the foreseeable future, the, 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 the foreseeable future, there'll be a huge amount of uncertainty. Uh, and where there's uncertainty, there's a need for communication. I want to talk about Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays... He made a lovely sauce. He made a lovely sauce. I always used to make a joke that if anyone quoted Edward Bernays, I'd have to say sauce Bernays. He... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Edward Bernays was the uncle of Sigmund Freud... And he's also considered to be the father of modern PR. He mixed psychoanalysis, psychology, sociology, and communications theory to set up a, a consultancy. I think initially it was just him and, you know, some, some secretarial support. But essentially it was the model for what went on to become the public relations agency. And I think, I think later in his career, he set up an agency that, that we recognise today as a, as a PR consultancy. But he pulled off what I consider to be the greatest and in some ways most evil PR stunt of all time. And I'm not sure it's ever been bettered. And it's, a, it's an awful story, but it's a story of brilliant evil genius. His client, we talked about tobacco earlier, his client was a consortium of American tobacco companies. And they had a problem. And the problem was that 50% of the US public did not smoke. And that 50% was women, because it was not considered ladylike or appropriate for women to smoke, certainly in public. Um, and therefore, if you're not smoking in public, you probably don't smoke at all. So there was an enormous market opportunity that they were missing out on. Can you help us, Mr. Bernays, was the question. He came up with a strategy that is just sort of jaw-droppingly brilliant. This is the 1920s. So what is one of the great social movements in the US of the 1920s? It's women's suffrage. An absolute masterstroke. He conflated the right of women to smoke with the right of women to vote. And he famously organised for 100 suffragettes to march through New York on the Easter Day Parade holding lit cigarettes aloft and he called them torches of freedom 
And so he created this connection between smoking and suffrage. And it changed forever the way that American women thought about smoking and condemned millions of them to die, of course. Um, although in fairness to Bernays, and I always say this when I tell this story, the evidence connecting smoking to cancer was non-existent in the 1920s. It really only started to emerge in the 1940s. So through the lens of history, it sounds absolutely terrible. In any event, it's incredibly manipulative, but brilliant. It was really interesting talking to you about your career. I think that we could probably carry on and do several more chapters, but uh, let's leave it here for now. And I can always grab you if I feel like doing another one. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger and there will be more to come soon. Goodbye for now. (laughs) 